according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, turn in your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John chapter 7. Last week we concluded episode uh, 57, was it? 58. And now we're ready for episode number one. Reason why is that the numbering starts over now with the new phase or the new stage of our Lord's ministry. Last week actually concluded the Galilean ministry. And I realize it seems like it's been forever. It uh, it has been. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll pray here in a moment. I just want to show you some of the uh, blessings of this. We hope to have these... Uh, some of these notes printed off, but going all the way back to episode number one, the healing of the nobleman's son in John 4. Remember when we taught that? May of 2005. So it's been a little while since we've been in the Galilean ministry. And concluding with uh, the cost of discipleship, episode 56. Cost of discipleship from Matthew 8 and Luke 9. So... Anyway, these notes are uh, on the website, and uh, at some point we'll get them out in printed form. It's uh, 43 pages total just for the Galilean portion. I think it's 79 pages uh, from the beginning until until this point, and uh, we'll try to get those out here as well. In the meantime put up the website and show off some of the neat things that Mr. Beveridge works on when uh, <coughs> these kind of things come about. Hey, I recognize that. You come over here to online studies and the ongoing studies, Life of Christ. It'll bring up this page here, which actually is organized by section. And today... It highlights the Galilean ministry, but if you want to look at the uh, the introductions, you can go there. The birth, infancy, and adolescence, you can go there. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, you go there. Or the Galilean ministry, you go there. At this afternoon, once the new MP3 arrives, the one you're actually sitting listening to now, when that one arrives, it's actually the first part of the next stage, which is section 5. It's the Perean and last Judean ministry of Jesus. And so uh, that will become the front page for the Life of Christ series. In any event, your documents are here. You can download those and use those. Word documents, PDF documents. And then the, uh, the audio messages are there. So that if at whatever point you wanted to go back and uh, read about the, or study about walking on water, for example, you can just go right there and find it in the harmony, find it in the outline and say, okay, that's lessons 151, 152, and 153. Those are the ones I want to listen to while I review those notes and while I go through the material. So this is going to become a pretty comprehensive index of the entire Life of Christ series where it's broken down by episode and uh, audio file with the, uh, the printed notes available. Anyway, I wanted to show that off since uh, Mr. Beveridge worked on that yesterday. All right, this is now the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus, episode number one, the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7, 2 says, Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was near. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And Father, we thank you for this, this uh, Life of Christ series. It has been a blessing now for a number of years. And we are uh, eager to move on into this next section of ministry. And we realize it's one of increased conflict 
we expect that, uh, that it will be very appropriate and very fitting for, uh, for us here today in our ministry as we, uh, we do indeed live and operate in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. So, Father, I pray that we would learn the lessons that you have for us as we observe our Savior in the training of his disciples, in the preparation for the cross. I pray that we might glean these principles as a uh, local church ministry that, well, Father, we're, we're training men, we're training women, we're training believers, and uh, we're looking forward, maybe not to a cross, but we're looking forward to uh, conflict in the days ahead and ultimately to be pre- presented before you spotless and blameless with great joy. So, Father, guide our thoughts today, direct our study, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we addressed a little bit here in John 7 already because one of our uh, episodes at the end of the Galilean ministry was Jesus rejects his brother's advice. And in uh, that episode where Jesus rejects his brother's advice, we looked at the first part of this chapter, really verses 2 down through verse 9. And if you remember, or if you don't remember, I'll remind you this morning, the brothers wanted him to go up to Jerusalem and make a big splash. They said, you know what, here you are, you're in Galilee, and you're, yeah, you're gathering some disciples and doing some stuff, but really, where the real money is, where the real ministry thriving success is, is going to be down there in Jerusalem. That's where Mount Zion is located. That's where the temple is located. That's where God uh, has placed the center of the Jewish universe. You need to get down there and make a big splash. Key word you want to pick up on is the word secret, encrypto. Verse 4, no one does anything in secret, encrypto. We don't talk about this very much. We, t- we talk about in Christ, in Christo. That's a huge doctrine for our positional truth as church-age believers. I, I can't stress enough what in Christo uh, entails. But this is in crypto, meaning in secret. And actually, there's nothing wrong with being in crypto. There's actually passages that encourage our ministry in crypto. Because our Father who sees in crypto will repay. And uh, the things that we do in secret, the things that we do in crypto, in our ambassador function, our giving function, our uh, other service, we don't have to be up front and seeking glory from men. Well, the brothers here don't understand that. They say no one does anything in secret in crypto when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And that's the, that's the cosmic way of thinking. That's an unbeliever's way of thinking. That, uh, hey, show off. Why not, right? If you've got it, flaunt it. Just uh, show off. And, and uh, if, if uh, you can do these things, then let it be known. Well, verse 5, I think, gives the whole crux of this issue anyway. Not even his brothers were believing in him. So he said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. Which is remarkable. They're unbelievers. He knows they're unbelievers, but he tells them to go to the feast. <clears throat> it's interesting. The, the rituals of Israel's worship, uh, the full meaning of which, of course, only believers would have the capacity to appreciate and, and take part in and celebrate. But even unbelievers took part in Passover, took part in tabernacles took part in the rituals it was a part of their culture it was a part of their their uh, their heritage uh, politically or racially and this uh, to me I'm not going to take the time to do it but to me this is a, a, a realm of study that ought to be expanded upon because I think there's a lot of people that confuse culture with the Christian way of life uh, that well you know they're born in a Christian nation. They're raised under, you know, moral values of the Judeo-Christian uh, heritage of our country, and they just assume that that has value of some sort. And uh, there's a there's a temporal life benefit. Don't get me wrong. There is a temporal life benefit to having such a culture, but it won't get anyone into heaven and has no eternal value. Anyway, he instructs them to go up, and they do. He says, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Now, we read in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. 
It's the same in crypto. When they told him, you don't want to do anything in crypto. It's a, it's a neat play on words here. And it's a neat significance, I think, to the passage is that that was exactly what he had intended was to operate in crypto. The, the hostility is increasing. They desire to put him to death. And he realizes that he can't allow them to do that if he's going to be obedient to God the Father. He cannot die at the Feast of Tabernacles because he has to be the Passover lamb six months out. And so he has to be very careful. We're all commanded to be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. We have to be shrewd as serpents, yet harmless as doves. We have to realize where we are and what the dangers are. And so he goes up here in crypto. As I outline this for you, let's go ahead and get some points. The first of which, point one, <clears throat> Jesus followed his unbelieving brothers. I remind you that they're unbelievers. Jesus followed his unbelieving brothers to the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus followed his unbelieving brothers to the Feast of Tabernacles. Combine verse 5 to verse 10. They had been dismissive of his secret ministry, but on this occasion, secrecy was in order. Secrecy was in order. The phrase en crypto being repeated from verse 4 to verse 10. And they'd been dismissive of that. People will, uh, will mock different ministries. They'll be disparaging of this ministry, for example, because of its size or because of its annual budget or what have you. Somehow, <clears throat> I don't find a verse that tells me that the evaluation of this ministry at the judgment seat of Christ is going to um, include the annual budget. Insofar as it, the, uh, the, you know, the, the gross numbers are concerned. Uh, ministry is always according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Are we faithful with the resources he provides? And that doesn't matter if we've got a $100,000 budget, a $200,000 budget, a million-dollar budget, whatever it is. All right, secrecy may be in order, and that's the case here. Now, was Jesus lying when he said, I'm not going up? He said, you guys go on up, I'm not going up. Go up to the feast yourselves, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Did he, make, did he utter a lie in verse 8? No. Not as we understand it. Not if we're going to define lie as something carnal. <clears throat> and yet Rahab uttered a lie and uh, was praised for that in Hebrews chapter 11 as an application of faith. All right. So if indeed Jesus Christ uttered a uh, statement contrary to truth, and yet by mean, doing so by means of faith is every lie a sin. I'm not going to give you the doctrine of lying this morning. However, under tactical situations in the angelic conflict, a <clears throat> deceptive, misleading uh, uh, action is often very strategic, very tactical on the battlefield and espionage. We understand that in temporal life. Um, in fact, World War II is pretty famous for a couple of different episodes. They built an entire phantom army around Patton. And they built this thing out of cardboard and they had it there where the German planes could see it and the German spies could look at it. And they were terrified of this massive buildup that General Patton was going to head up and lead the invasion of Europe. The whole thing was a fraud. Now, did they have to go home every night and confess their lies to God the Father as a, as a personal sin? No, <clears throat> in any event, um, this kind of opens a, a bigger issue we want to get into. No, he was not carnal, all right? And even if uh, he had uttered an untrue statement there, it may be that, that he was not intending to go up, but after they'd gone, then his father gave him instructions, said, no, you need to be there. Remember, he wasn't tapping into omniscience. He didn't know where he was going to be going a week out, two weeks out, or what have you. It might have been that his, full, his total intention was to stay in Galilee until his brothers departed and then the leading of the Holy Spirit said, all right, now you need to go up also. All right? 
<clears throat> on this occasion, secrecy is in order. Now, we're going to be introduced to some folks here. Let's read through it, and then we'll get the rest of our points. So when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Now, we're going to define these folks here in a moment. And uh, sometimes you can read a text and kind of chuckle at it and say, well, that's kind of goofy. I thought all of them were Jews. You know, isn't Jesus a Jew? Who are these Jews here? We'll talk about that. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Fear of the Jews. It's an interesting study when you uh, scan for those words and, and survey every passage in the Gospels where that phrase, fear of the Jews, appears. But when it was now the midst of the feast, it's a week-long feast, so partway through on day two or day three or day four or whatever, in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? How did he get so smart being such a fool? Why does he know so much? How does this idiot know so much? Again, the world looking at things is handicapped. Their hands are tied because they are limiting, their minds are limited to only thinking in cosmic terms. They cannot think with divine viewpoint. And so there are things that an unbeliever is not going to fathom, the unfathomable truths of God's word. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. <clears throat> he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, this really hits <clears throat> hits them hard right where it hurts, because every last one of these religious leaders or uh, most of them, the over, we can't say all of them, but let's say 99 <clears throat> percent of them, uh, they, they become teachers for their own glory. As he says here, you don't want to do that in verse 18. That's exactly what they're doing. The reason why you want to become a teacher is to show off, is to manifest, is to exhibit to the world how smart you are, how close to God you are, and all these things. Okay, now this is going to go on down. I'm going to stop reading there. Really, the whole context takes us down through verse 52. So we've got the whole chapter to work with here. And uh, I would just encourage you during this upcoming week, go ahead and read the chapter, read it through several times, kind of get the understanding. He arrives, he stays behind the scenes, he scopes things out quietly, but then at some point he steps up and starts teaching. And uh, in the midst of the feast, whatever it was, day three, day four, day two maybe, uh, at some point, I'm thinking day three or four, it's a seven-day feast, and... um, Why did he stay silent to start with and then start teaching halfway through? Why did he say, I'm not going, and then later on change his mind and go? Some of it we're going to have to leave ourselves with speculation because the why questions tend not to get answered. (laughs) We just know that this is what happens. So read through the chapter. Kind of get a overall concept for how he goes up secretly. He stays silent. He starts teaching. He amazes everybody. And then the the conflict back and forth. By the time uh, the chapters come to an end, of course, they want to kill him. Now, I'm going to introduce to a couple of folks here, the Jews and the crowds. The Jews were seeking and the crowds were grumbling. The Jews were seeking And the crowds were grumbling. Specifically, what were they seeking? They were seeking him. And it wasn't for autographs. (laughs) It wasn't in a positive volition idea about, oh boy, I hope Jesus is here. It's like going to a Schaefer conference saying, oh man, I hope Ron Merriman's on the speaking list. Just something that you, you, you wait for, you can't wait for. 
the uh, when did I go green? There we go. We're going to get a new one of these. There's this little boxy switch here that sometimes flickers. Okay. So they weren't seeking him in positive volition. They weren't all eager to say, oh boy, where is he? Where is he? I hope he's going to be here. Remember, he had actually skipped the previous Passover. Uh, He spent uh, that Passover out of Jerusalem, up on the mountain, feeding the 5,000. He did not go to Jerusalem. First Passover we have record that he ever missed. He'd been a regular at at these feasts, but didn't go to Passover. And near as we can tell, didn't go to Pentecost. And so here they are watching here at this feast and for him to miss all three remember they're required to miss all three would be absolutely unthinkable and even might give them grounds to accuse him of of impiety or or, uh, negligence in his spiritual duties so uh, he does go up he just doesn't make the big entrance doesn't show off doesn't gather attention to himself he is there however So the Jews are seeking and the crowds were grumbling. Now, let's introduce these guys. I had thought that we had given you definitions prior to this, because I know we've had this phrase before. But when I scanned back through all 70 pages of the notes, I couldn't find it. So here it is. Subpoint A now, the Jews. Who are the Jews? Hoi Udayoi is the plural. If you want a singular, you shorten the hoi to a ha. And uh, shorten Udayoe to Udayas. So get rid of that I and change that I to an S. And you can make a singular out of Hoi Udayoe, turn it to Ha Udayas. 2453 is the Strong's index number. It's actually an adjective. We use it as a noun. It means Jewish. It means Jewish. Jewish chair, Jewish clothes, Jewish food, Jewish jokes, Jewish whatever. It's an adjective. It modifies something. When it doesn't modify anything, it becomes a noun in itself. So the Jewish ones or the Jews. Now, There is a particular use in the Gospels and most notedly in the Gospel of John where when Udayoi is used, it applies not to Jews racially, per se, but to those that are the followers of the Mosaic Law, followers of what later became known as Judaism. So in this context, Mosaic Law observant religious Jews. Mosaic Law observant religious Jews. Jews. Just as today, modern, the modern state of Israel today, you've got, they're, they're called secular, secular Jews, Israelis. They're citizens of the nation of Israel. They live in the land of Israel. Uh, but to them, Judaism is simply a culture. It's a part of their heritage. It's part of their, uh, their, uh, their racial background. But they are not observant. Uh, maybe Passover comes around, the, the Rosh Hashanah comes around, uh, <clears throat> different holidays come around, and and they note them kind of like maybe a cultural American might note uh, Flag Day or Mother's Day or or it's just a day on the calendar. It it's a, it has a cultural significance, but only so far as you make of it. See, and they're for the most part secular. There are, though, observant uh, Jews uh, in Israel and our country and around the world. And by observant, meaning that they practice rabbinic Judaism. They practice rabbinic Judaism. Now, the observant religious Jews of Christ's day uh, would have been observing Mosaic law in the practice of the Second Temple, in uh, in Herod's Temple in Jerusalem. They did have a functioning priesthood. They did offer annual sacrifices up until 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed the temple for good. All right, but there's something in the air today, isn't there? What is that? I think it's Texas. All right. 
Mosaic law observant religious Jews. And so don't confuse them with others. Clearly the Jews and the crowds are two distinct entities in this episode. You got the Jews doing one thing, saying one thing. You got the crowds doing something else, saying something else. And yet the crowds are very cautious because they're afraid of the Jews. Now the crowds themselves are largely Jewish by race. Let's not confuse the term the Jews for a racial thing in this in this context. Jesus and his disciples are all Jews, for example. The crowds are almost certainly uh, pri- uh, primarily Jewish, overwhelmingly Jewish. Could be an occasional God-fearing Gentile slipped in here, but most of them are going to be Jewish. So those are the Jews. You might even also think of them as the theocratic rulers in Jerusalem. The theocratic rulers in Jerusalem. Remember, Rome had dominion, political dominion. And Rome governed the province. Um, early on, they, they had a, a despot king set up like Herod. They allowed the, the Judea to be its own quasi-independent kingdom under Herod. But then after Herod died, they broke it up into the different portions and they governed it under a governor like Pontius, Pontius Pilate, for example, different governors at different times. That was political rule. They were happy, though, to let the Jews have their religion and to allow the uh, theocratic rulers to uh, to be in charge. That's why the Sanhedrin still existed. That's why they exercised authority. Now, they couldn't they couldn't pronounce death sentences. They couldn't put Jesus Christ to death, which is why the Sanhedrin had to take him to Pilate to have him executed. But within the religious sphere, Pilate, the Romans, they were pretty well content to let the Sanhedrin run things. Let them operate the temple. Let them operate their uh, their synagogues in the different Jewish towns. So long as Rome received the annual tribute, the Jews could do whatever they wanted. And, and to be honest, uh, the Jews were pretty divided. Pharisees and Sadducees and uh, and other groups. There were uh, uh, the Zealot, the party of the Zealots, the Essenes, or other factions, and and they pretty much didn't get along with each other. And Rome was happy about that. <laughs> Let them go ahead and dispute back and forth and fight for control of the Sanhedrin. If they occupied all their energies fighting for control of the Sanhedrin, then there was less time and energy they had to fighting against Rome. Those are the Jews. All right, the crowds. Point B, who are the crowds? Hoi Akloi. Again, you can get the singular of Hoi Akloi by dropping your iotas. Ha Aklos. Hoi Akloi is the plural. Ha Aklos is the singular. 3793 is the Strong's Index number. Crowd, throng, multitude. It's a good translation. There's nothing wrong with crowd as a translation of Aklos. Um, there's a difference between an ecclesia and an aklos. An ecclesia is a called out assembly. They're both bunches of people, right? But an ecclesia is a called out assembly, an assembly that has been called uh, for a purpose. It's been called with an objective. It's been called in, in a uh, semblance of order. An aklos is a bunch of people that uh, does not have the order of an ecclesia. They may not know their purpose. They may not have a purpose. They're just a mob. They're just there. In this case, mobs plural, akloi plural. If, if you have a single crowd, how big is that? How many is a crowd? Yeah, three is a crowd, I guess. If yeah, it's a girl you're kind of sweet on and you want Tom alone there, then yeah, three is a crowd. But how big is a crowd? Any, yeah, any whatever size, and then what happens if there's two crowds that you put together? Does it become one great big crowd, or is it still two crowds in the same location, or three crowds? Yeah, well, in this case, when crowds are used plural, uh, we have groups, and the groups have combined, but they're still groups. So you will have crowds of Judeans and crowds of Galileans and crowds of Pereans and maybe even a crowd of Greeks and, and, uh, and what have you. I think in uh, Acts chapter 2, we've got a good illustration of that with the crowds that were coming for Pentecost. And they had all their different racial uh, backgrounds and their different national backgrounds, languages, and so forth. 
Now, some they were divided here. Some crowds testified to Jesus' personal goodness. They testified to Jesus' personal goodness. We still have the same group around today. Yeah, Jesus was a good man. He's a good man. A good, moral man. As if personal morality was, uh, was uh, intrinsically of, of, of value. Personal morality didn't get anybody to heaven. So as we read it here, the uh, crowds were divided. There was much grumbling among the crowds, verse 12, concerning him. Some were saying, that is, some crowds were saying, he is a good man. Other crowds were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. So some crowds testified to Jesus' personal goodness. Other crowds accused him of false teaching. This dichotomy perfectly illustrates 1 Peter 2.12, which George Meisinger was telling us about in 1 Peter 2.12. We'll look at that here. In fact, let's turn to it now. But it's amazing. The same arguments are around today. You know, the crowds, some of them did not like the Lord's teaching. They did not like the Lord's teaching. He was very confrontational. He, uh, he, he wasn't playing by their games. And uh, he was rather insulting towards their teachers. <clears throat> and... He had a horrible way of, of saying things that like um, uh, like expanding the uh, the uh, adultery rules to include mental attitudes. You know, man, some guys would, would listen to a message like that and say, are you kidding? You know, they, they're pretty good when it comes to the, the legalism of the Pharisees. And yeah, they can tithe and they can show up and they can do all the the legalism games and then in externally people look at them and they're impressed absolutely impressed and man look at these guys but where were they in their heart and so jesus starts talking about the heart he says you know if you've looked at a woman with lust then you've already committed adultery in your heart so you can see why some of those messages may not be popular for uh, some folks so some, they hated his message, but they couldn't deny his, his character, which I find interesting. And in fact, it's the illustration here where we're told, uh, Beloved, I urge you, this is what Dr. Meisinger taught us last week, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day a visitation. Keep your behavior excellent. You know, it's interesting. And here, the crowds, they're, they're caught in this conundrum because, you know, some of them are saying, you know what, he's, he's leading people astray, he's a false teacher, and all these other things. But they couldn't deny his personal character. They had to say, yeah, but look, <laughs> he's, he's honest, he's upright, he's, he's faithful, he's true in everything that he says and in his personal life and, and all the rest. You know, you, you start to wonder sometimes about public officials. And you just find, look at what's happening in New York right now. They get rid of a governor for his uh, immorality, and the new governor comes in on the day he's sworn in. He says, oh, by the way, let me lay out all my immorality too. So <laughs> kind of a testimony at the door kind of thing when you take office. How pathetic. So uh, we have here the disagreement among the crowds. And I think we have the same thing we see today. People will try to say, oh, yeah, he's a good man. Do you ever encounter that? You're going to say, no, wait a minute. I like the, the Josh McDowell approach. I read this when I was Bob's age. I was younger than that. I read this back in the 70s. Josh McDowell said, you know, you just can't call him a good man because he claimed to be God. So, you know, if somebody today walked in here and told you he was God, would you think he was a good man? Or do you think he was a lunatic or do you think he was a liar? So what is it? Is he a lunatic or is he a liar or is he telling the truth? Is he really God's son? Is he here to redeem mankind? And that was basically the whole approach to uh, Josh McDowell and uh, More Than a Carpenter and some of, his other, uh, some of his other apologetics works all those years ago. Was he a liar or was he a lunatic or was he the Lord? You just can't say, oh, he was a moral man. He was a good teacher. All right. Point three. At some point midweek, 
Jesus taught a public Bible class in the temple. At some point midweek, Jesus taught a public Bible class in the temple. We're going to outline this for you. In fact, I've got some maps prepared. I want to show you kind of the layout on the temple and show you some things. I think we don't understand exactly how the temple was, was configured, how it was set up, how they operated, where was Bible class held. And when you walked into the temple, they had uh, glass doors right there by the parking lot. And you walked in and there was a little table with bulletins. And then <clears throat> there was a very clear path to the auditorium where you sat down and the pastor taught Bible class. All right? I'm making all this up. None of this is true. If we approach the, the, the temple in the time of Christ like we approach Austin Bible Church, we've got a flawed understanding. And in some cases, maybe it even opens up for questions. Do you ever ponder? Well, midway through the feast, we read here, in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Well, how do you get that gig? How does that happen? Do you, do you sign up on a, on a speaking list and, and then wait in line and then finally you get a pulpit? Do they have pulpits? All right. Remember, the primary activity of the temple was not Bible class. The primary activity of the temple was animal sacrifice. That it had, as its pinnacle, it had the it had the altar, and then it had the holy place, and it had the most holy place, and that wasn't open for tours. All right, it was limited to the priesthood. It was limited to the high priest on the day of atonement. Now, the precincts around the temple, that's where teaching did take place, and oftentimes it took place from the priests, or from the Levites, or from a rabbi, just a teacher. And a visiting teacher could start a class with those that he brought. Just an impromptu class anywhere on the grounds. And there were different courtyards, there were different rooms, there were different places where that, uh, where that could take place. All right, this is, uh, it says copyright, but it's old enough that we can ignore it. Actually, Edersheim's in public domain anyway. 120 years ago it was copyrighted. But he drew this up in the... Uh, Alfred Edersheim, uh, the temple in the in the time of Christ, one of the Alfred Edersheim collection. And what I like about this one is that it has, of course, the uh, the top down view, the, the the layout of it, map layout. But then up at the very top there, you see it has the the cross section. It actually has the elevation uh, change there, where you see how the uh, the porch at the entrance of the holy place was the highest point of the temple. That was the, the pinnacle from which the adversary, uh, Satan, was going to throw Christ down and, and uh, have the angels catch him and so forth. Uh, so you get kind of an elevation contrast there on that section across the top. Now, the, um, the courtyard itself, the precincts under here, it's changed from yellow to something more visible, um, these walls had gates in them, and they, they had uh, covered porches, covered porticos, they called them. Uh, but you could walk underneath them in the rain or in the heat and the sun and so forth. And you had shade around these edges. And uh, Solomon's porch was uh, there on the east and the, uh, the royal porch on the south. They had different names for them. But you'd come in from any direction, whatever side you were approaching the Temple Mount from. you walk up the hill to the Temple Mount and into this Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles... Jews could be in there, but it was called the court of the Gentiles because that's as far as the Gentiles could go into this outer courtyard. Actually, if you passed within the inner courtyard here, there were different gates on different sides. And, uh, but this part here on the east was called the women's court. Not because it, you had to be a woman in there. Men could go in there too, Jewish men. But that's as far as the women could go. So they called it the women's court. And there were other uh, compartments. There was even a woodshed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they used a lot of wood. Think about all the fires they had to keep. And so you had, a little, you had four little courtyards in here. And then you also had um, a balcony. They went all the way around these three edges right here. 
I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people would be. And on a Feast of Tabernacles, thousands were, were packed into these precincts day by day by day. And so the Lord comes in and he comes in with his disciples and, and uh, they find a, a corner off somewhere. They find a spot underneath one of the porches. They find a place uh, where they can gather around and, and uh, he can step up and, and uh, start preaching. All right. Given that the 12 were all Jewish males, they could actually enter into the uh, the male portion over here on the left. Now, this had kind of a ring within it as well. How well you can see it right here. And inside that inner ring there, only the priest could go within, but any Jewish male could go into that ring around there. All right? And it's not really much of a wall. It was a foot and a half tall. So it's just like a little rail. And they could look over the rail, and they could watch all the priests and all their activity, all the animals that were sacrificed, all the blood that was sprinkled, all of the activity that took place in, that, in the priest court. Now, Jesus was not a priest. Jesus would not have been entitled to stand in this priest court. He and his disciples could have been out here in this section observing... It's possible that that's where he did his teaching, or it's also possible, more, much more likely, that he came out here somewhere and uh, spoke in the precincts there. We have an interactive map available. And this looks neat in the office. I wasn't sure how it would show up here. We'll see how it shows up here. That's not so bad. So this is uh, looking, this near corner here is the southeast corner, so it's looking northwest across the uh, the uh, temple grounds there. There are different gates and entrances into the place. Um, but it's the same, the same layout, the same idea. You've got the, the outer wall with the porticos, the covered porches and so forth, Solomon's porch here on the east. Um, the court of the Gentiles is this number two area out here and uh, we can even zoom in on some of these this is looking from the east towards the west Solomon's porch that runs across the top of it there at the front this is looking from the south what were called the Hulda gates kind of tunnels going up through and into the court of the Gentiles actually um, different views there. And Antonia, the Antonia Tower was named after Mark Antony and it was a Roman uh, fortress. If uh, there was a riot or trouble or the Jews got a little bit too uppity in the temple, uh, the Romans uh, legionaries would come out of the Antonia Fortress to establish order. Coming from the west, now we're looking east. Again, you've got different gates and stairs going up there. This is the, the last remnant that's still existent today. They think is existent today in terms of the western wall, the Wailing Wall. will be that little stretch right there. And uh, there you have it. Now, if we go inside, some of these are fun just to click on and take a look at, right? Coming through the uh, stairs up here to the court of the Gentiles, uh, the women's court is there on your right, the men's court, the court of Israel on the left, different gates get you in. Most of the Gentiles would stay out here in the court, and most of the, the visiting itinerant preachers would stay out here in the court, where they would do most of their open-air preaching. To this day, you know, tour groups come in, and they tour, and, and whatever, and as the tour goes on, and pictures are taken, all this other stuff, then the tour guide stops if he's a pastor and has the opportunity to teach teach a Bible class there. The view of the inner court. I, like the, I just like the 3D pictures because they kind of show the, the uh, elevation changes and the, the uh, structure there. The temple itself, the building itself, the holy place and the holy holies wasn't really all that big of a structure. It didn't have to be. There weren't that many people that actually went in there. Yeah, here's where we see the different chambers. This is looking at the court of the women. 
where people could stand down below, but then also stand up there on the balconies. And then they had open air uh, chambers in the corners, chamber of oils, chamber of the Nazarites, chamber of lepers, chamber of wood. Okay, chamber of wood, that's nicer. One of the other maps I looked at called it the woodshed. And I thought, you know, I've been taken to the woodshed. I, I know how that works. The beautiful gate, the Nicanor gate, and so forth. Again, the Antonia fortress is there in the corner, ready to, uh, ready to answer to difficulties. All right, have we seen everything here? Saw that already. The columns. All right. Yeah, Herod, uh, Herod built a pretty uh, impressive temple. All right, partway through the week, it's time for Bible class, time for teaching. And you wonder if, uh, again, the Lord was trying to stay in secret, he was trying to stay quiet. But after a couple of days listening to what they were teaching, couldn't help himself anymore, right? And then in perfect obedience to God the Father, stepped up on whatever day, day three, day four, whatever it was, and began to teach. Now, background on the Feast of Tabernacles comes out of Leviticus. Leviticus 23, let's look at that. In case you're not up to speed on Leviticus. Leviticus 23. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel. This is Leviticus 23, verses 34 through 44. Although you can kind of get the whole gist of it in 33 through 36. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this uh, seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. So it's a week-long feast. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. So the first day is treated as a Sabbath day. It doesn't have to show up on Saturday if the uh, fifteenth the day of the, or on, uh, of the uh, month uh, remember, they organized their month on uh, on a lunar basis when they saw the new moon. Anyway, on the 15th day of the month, what if that turns out to be a Monday, a Tuesday, or what have you? Well, you treat it as a Sabbath day because it's the first day. That's why when Christ was crucified, there were back-to-back Sabbath days because that Friday, Passover is a Sabbath day. It turned out it was a Passover Friday, and so you have a Sabbath day on Passover, and then what do you have the very next day? The Sabbath day, because it's Saturday. That's right. So uh, they couldn't get to the tomb until early Sunday morning to uh, bring their spices and and whatnot because they they were home for the Sabbath on that Friday and that Saturday. Anyway. um, For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. And it tells, it goes down through here, uh, verse 39, on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month when you have gathered in the crops of the land. Now, by the way, this follows trumpets and atonement because the Feast of Trumpets starts this month and the Day of Atonement is on the 10th day of this month. This is a big month in the fall, the seventh month of the religious year. So... um, On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now, on the first day, you shall take for yourself foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and bows of leafy uh, trees and willows of the brook. Here in Texas, do you call that bows or boughs? Boughs. Okay. Got to speak like a native when I'm ministering here in Texas. When the bow breaks, the baby will fall. Is that how it works? Okay. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So they have a wilderness survival camp out. They build a structure. They build a shelter out of these branches, out of these leaves. And it's to remind them about their departure out of Egypt. 
verse 42, you shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. Why? Why would you once a year go live in a tent for seven days to remind you your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they lived in the booths for 40 years. They lived in tents. See, I lived in a tent for six months and, then, and uh, I just as soon never do that again. All right. You know, a weekend camp out is one thing, but six months in a tent. Goodness. All right. So this is the Feast of Booths, a week long event. And at some point partway through. Jesus could not help himself, got up and started teaching. Point B. The Jews were shocked. I think shocked is a good word. The Jews were shocked that Jesus could be educated without being schooled. Give the vocabulary here that Jesus could be educated without being schooled. Again, reading from John chapter 7 and verse 15. How has this man become educated? How has this man become learned, become lettered, we would say? How does he know his letters? If we give it a a literal rendering, grammata oiden. Grammata oiden. We know oida for knowledge, full knowledge. You have gnosis, epinosis, oida. So you've got the, uh, the knowledge of what? Of letters, grammata. A gramma was a letter. Like we have uh, the word uh, grammar, the word grammatical. Grammar school. All right. Where you learn your letters, supposedly. I went to government school, so we colored pictures and <laughs> took naps at recess. Grammatoiden. How does this man know his letters? How is he educated without having been schooled? And we have here me mimathikos. Me is the negative for not. Mimathikos. Now, this is an adverb, but it comes from Montano to learn or mathetes, uh, where you are a disciple, but manthano, to learn. And it's in the perfect tense. See the duplication of your M's there. Memathekos. It says a perfect tense, having never, uh, past completed action, present ongoing results, having not been schooled, how is he now educated? Now, I didn't put Strong's numbers up here. Let me get those for you. But you see, this is where their cosmic thinking has them trapped. They can only think in their universe. Their world, their realm is the realm of this legalism, this realm of of, uh, Pharisaic Judaism. It's this realm where even the Lord of the Sabbath didn't recognize the Sabbath. Not the way they were perverting it. The Pharisees had placed themselves in the chair of Moses, and by the time they had added all of their collected traditions to the law, the one who gave the law was like a fish out of water. You know, something greater than the temple was here, and It was not uh, pleasant what he uh, was observing there. So they're trapped. They cannot, it, it, it boggles their mind how Jesus could be so lettered. How in the world does he know the Word of God? Because what was he teaching? He got up and began to teach. Jesus went up into the temple, began to teach. Was he teaching Spanish? <laughs> Was he teaching uh, American history? No, he was teaching the Bible. He was teaching the Word of God, teaching the Old Testament, teaching the law. And they're stunned. How has this man become learned? They can't deny his capacity or his, his, his uh, proficiency. Remember, even back at the age of 12, they were, uh, they were just kind of bamboozled how this kid knew so much of the Scriptures. 
Now here he is, and they're stunned because he's never been educated, meaning he hasn't gone to their schools. He has not been part of the, he's not a Jew in the definition we just gave you. He is not a part of the religious leader establishment of Jerusalem. You see, at least if they disagreed, at least they, they had everybody broken down between Pharisees and Sadducees, for example. Or they had everybody broken down between the school, the uh, traditions of, of Hillel and the traditions of Shammai, the two leading uh, schools of, of uh, interpretation of Mosaic law at that time. And so, because he wasn't part of either school, then he was an idiot. There's no other conclusion. That's the universe they live in. Same thing happens today. This is, this is the realm we function in today, what modern academia is all about today. Anything that's not accredited doesn't exist. It's, it's not a part of this universe. It's not a part of this priesthood. See, and I use that term. I believe it is a priesthood in in uh, many different ways. All right. Vocabulary. I didn't put the Strong's numbers on there. So let me just pull them up here. Verse 15. And. Um, If you regularly use the uh, Logos Bible software, let me show you what you can do on this. Just pull up an exegetical guide. This will, uh, if you don't use the software, that's fine. That's, you know, there's no reward or lack of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But the, uh, the benefits of what will save you a tremendous amount of time. If you can type a verse and click go, there it is. All right, John 7:15 in the New American Standard Bible. Click the green thing, and there it goes. And so here's your verse. The Jews then were astonished, saying, "How has this man become learned, having never been educated?" If uh, the words are colored yellow, that means that uh, we've left out some of the minor words, but uh, the major words of the passage are there. And now you can just scan down and say, "Okay, there's Eudaios for Jews, 24:53." Isn't that what I said a little bit ago? 2453, there it is. Okay. Uh, then, or therefore, astonished. I didn't bring it up, but maybe you want to know what Thalmazo is all about. You can do a word study on Thalmazo. Uh, saying how this man become learned. And this is actually wrong. Oh, my goodness. Having never been educated. All right, here's Montano, 3129. And they have the wrong term there, keyed for learned. That's amazing. What chaos. Wait, Yeah, chaos isn't in that verse. Ha! I'm going to report a typo to Lagos. All right. Ethalmazon un hoyudaioe legantes poshutas gramata oiden. Gramata oiden. So there's your word. Well, okay, I'm going to go home this afternoon and report the typo. All right. How does this man know his letters, know his grammata? So let's pull up grammata. The singular is gramma. It's like the plural of charisma is charismata. The plural of pneuma is pneumata. plural of gramma is grammata. And... Um, Strong's index on Gramata. Eleven twenty one. All right, eleven twenty one. Well, it took me six minutes to find that. Eleven twenty one. All right, so if you want to pursue Grandma's award studies, number eleven twenty one. How does he know his letters? Having never been schooled, having never become a disciple. The verb is manthano, and it's a perfect. 
uh, active participle here, having never been a disciple. We're commanded to make disciples. The Great Commission is to make disciples. As far as they're concerned, this man's not a disciple, never has been a disciple. Because he's never been in their schools. He's never been under their system. Therefore, he's not a disciple. Make sense? All right. Well, we'll pick this up next week. I am three minutes long. We started three minutes late. Is that right? But I'm out of coffee, so I better stop. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this study. And thank you for the example of our Savior, the disciples after him, those that uh, the religious experts considered to be idiots and morons, uh, amateurs, and yet they had the best teaching in the history of the universe. So, Father, I pray that we would be uh, convicted about our own responsibilities to make disciples and to be disciples, to recognize the seriousness of training and preparation, of equipping for the gifts and the work of service, but also to recognize that it's not about being a part of a formal religious uh, structure. And I pray that you would open our eyes to this truth and, and help use this passage to shape and form the training ministry that you have for Austin Bible Church. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.